We are in Luke chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to start in verse 10. We'll just read it in just one moment. To get started this morning, I want to start off by asking two quick questions. Two quick questions. Questions not for you to answer out loud, but to, to think, and it'll hopefully set us on the track of where we're going to go um, this morning. The first question that I want to ask you is, what satisfies you? And I know that sounds like a Snickers commercial, but it's not. This is a, this is a real question that I want to ask each and every one. I want you all to be thinking right now, what satisfies you? Right? And so when I, when I say the word satisfy, this is what I mean. What are the things that, that fill, fill you up? Right? What are the things that give you joy? What are the things that make you happy? What are the things that you want to do? What are the things that you, you drive yourself to do? Not always things that are physical, right? but they are things that, that, fill your, that fill your soul, what drives you, what recharges you. And at the danger of oversimplifying it, maybe, um, what is it that you are living for? What are you pressing into? What are you leaning into in your life? Um, what satisfies you? So these things could be, um, and, and these are good. I'm not, I'm not trying to like, make this list where these things got to be bad. Right? Could, could, be, could be good food. Right? Good food satisfies. Right? And you have a good meal that, that satisfies you. Good, good drink is, is, is satisfying. Good, good friends and good family, when you gather together, and you put those things together, Right? Good food, good drink, and, and family, and friends, and, and, and fellowship. You get those things to, to, together, and that, that satisfies. That satisfies me. That's why I love one of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving. Because of that, there's just good food, good drink, and good family together. And sometimes even friends. What else satisfies you? It could be maybe your children. It could be your, your, Christina's like, my cup is running over. <laughs> Maybe it's grandchildren that satisfies you, gives you joy and delight. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's art or cooking or music or things that are outdoors. Maybe it's even your career. So I want you to think deeply about these things. What satisfies you? And, and, and my hope is, is that as you're coming to these deeper levels of your, of your soul and what really satisfies you, that really wants to, I want to bring us to the second question now. And that second question is, is does Jesus satisfy you? Now you might just think that I just kind of pulled a bait and switch on you there, didn't I? Like I just kind of set you up for failure and I didn't. Does Jesus satisfy you? That sounds like a weird question. How can Jesus satisfy my desires when I define my satisfaction as things that I perceive that I need and want and those things are the things that I go after and that's why I'm satisfied with those things? How can Jesus meet those needs? I want you to delight and enjoy in the good things that God has given us. I haven't set you up. These, the question number one are good and great things that God has given us to enjoy and delight, but yet underneath all of that, that second question must be answered first. Does Jesus satisfy you? Does Jesus satisfy me? So let's look at Luke chapter 9. And let's see Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10 through 17, a, a glorious story that helps us see the importance of, and um, 
uh, the, the, the importance and the, uh, the need for us to be satisfied by Jesus alone. Let's, let's look at verse 10. And let's, let's read it together. It'll be on the screen, but hopefully you're looking at your Bibles because I'll probably be standing in your way anyways. On, on their return, the apostles told him all that they'd done. So you remember previously when we, got to, when we were together, or at least when I preached, that uh, the disciples were sent out by Jesus and now they're returning and they're telling Jesus all, that they, all the things that they'd done, right? And he, Jesus, took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And the crowds, or when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So the exact same thing that Jesus told his disciples to do is the exact same thing that Jesus does. Right? We, we saw this. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus tells his disciples to do it, and Jesus continues to do it. Right? Healing, preaching the kingdom of, of God and healing. Verse 12, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away and to, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But when he said to them, You give them to something to eat. That's an imperative command. You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy uh, food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, Have them sit down in groups of 50. That's still a lot of groups, by the way. 500, if I'm asked correctly, of just the dudes. All right, verse 15. And they did so. And they had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, the twelve baskets of broken pieces. Amen. May the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, move in our hearts this morning to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Pretty, pretty great passage. I mean, pretty, pretty spectacular passage. If you can sit down and just kind of think about a little bit the, uh, the, the scene that's being laid out for us and the detail being laid out. Pretty spectacular uh, uh, time. Um, now, if you have any church experience, which I think pretty much most of us probably do, we have a little bit of church experience, all of us, and if you've ever went to Sunday school, then you are very familiar with this story, aren't you? You're very familiar with the story of little felt Jesus on the board, because he's 2D, right? And he, and he takes the loaves from the little boy, right, who's down here, and, and he breaks it and he feeds the multitude of people sitting on the hill, Right? So we, we know the story, we've heard this, and, and for good reason why we all really know this story. Did you know that this is the only miracle that Jesus performs that isn't recorded in all four Gospels? This is recorded in Matthew, this is recorded in Mark, Luke, and John. Each and every one have, a, have this same account recorded in all four of the Gospels. So no wonder we know this story pretty well. 
But when we read it this morning, it seems like there's something incomplete, especially if you went to Sunday school and you did the children's Sunday school thing. There's that, this, this little incomplete part in, in Luke, and that's the detail of the little boy who has the five loaves and the two fish, and, and apparently the disciples commandeer it from him, and, and Jesus uses that to, to feed the 5,000, right? We, we miss that in, in, um, in Luke's account. That account, or that particular detail, which we all know, right, that's probably the most familiar part of this whole passage, is the little boy who gave the five loaves and, and, and two fishes, right? That, all, that is only recorded in John's gospel. Now, did it happen in Luke? Yeah, it's the same story. But it's just the one little small detail that only John records. But this is where most Sunday school lessons kind of focus on this little boy. They kind of focus on this, this little boy, and there's a lot of sermons on this, on this little boy, and, and, the, and the whole and, uh, encouragement or exhortation in the teaching or in the sermon is you, you should be more like the boy. Share your lunch. Give what you have to those who are hungry. You are the miracle to help others. You are the miracle to, to feed others. You, you get the idea, right? How many of you have heard that passage kind of taught that way and preached that way? I know I have, right? I know I have. Certainly a great, noble idea. We need to take what we have and we should share, and it's considered a morally right and good thing to do, even among lost people, to share of your abundance and what you have. But unfortunately, that's not the point of the passage. That's why that detail is only in one of the Gospels. The, the little boy, as cool as he probably was, and he got himself a little felt picture of himself, was not the point of the passage. In fact, it's one of the very last points, a very small implication. And, and to focus on that is to miss the point of the real miracle that's taking place. So I want to kind of transition a little bit and put my little teaching hat on now. And I want to teach you real quickly where this kind of teaching comes from. Okay? Everybody with me? Everybody tracking? Okay. In the early 19th century and into the 20th century, there emerged a new form of liberalism that invaded the, the seminaries and then trickled its way down into the, into the churches. And this new form of liberalism, one of its tenets was an outright denial of any kind of supernatural intervention of God. Meaning this, uh, what this means is that there's, there's no such thing as miracles. Miracles did not take place. They're all used to be taught as metaphors to teach a greater moral plan or greater moral idea. So there's no literal resurrection. There's no miracles of Jesus, including this one. There's no miraculous accounts in the Old Testament. None of those things took place. That they're all unhistorical and they're because they were impossible. And the rationale that these liberals uh, uh, had in, in, in engaging the scripture is they believed that because the people of the 19th and 20th century and now moving into the 21st century as we are, I say moving into, we're there in the 21st century, is, is that if we are these kind of people who know science and technology and we have industry and we have arts, how can we be so sophisticated and believe in something like fairy tales like that? Right? In fact, one of, uh, a, a, one of the well-known liberals of the 20th century uh, said this, and I'm summarizing. He said, a, a person cannot listen to the radio and make 
I mean, listen to Pandora. He didn't say this. But listen to Pandora on a little device on your, on your phone and, and the use of other modern electronic gadgets, Apple Watches and MacBooks and all of those things and iPads, and still utilize contemporary forms of medicine and, 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 and medical things and still believe in a world that is inhabited by demons and angels and miracles and that sort of thing because they just don't fit in that kind of worldview. I can't wrap my, hand, my mind around a worldview of a miraculous God interacting in a very natural world when I'm this sophisticated and I have these things. And so when this worldview came around, when this worldview came around, it rocked the churches. It really, it really did, because up to this point, I'm not saying there hasn't been any false teaching. There clearly has been. But up to this point, for 1,900 years, the church confidently rested in the confession of faith that Christ has come, which means the supernatural has come into the natural world. And when the supernatural comes into the natural world, that story is filled with miracles, including his own birth. I remember... In college, we as a family decided to celebrate Christmas a little differently. And we went up to Williamsburg, Virginia. And we all met up there for, uh, for Christmas. And I remember we went to a little, a little Baptist church, actually right across, old, you know, as old as our country is, this church was. And it was right across the street from William and Mary, which is the oldest college in the United States. And I remember the audacity of this preacher, false prophet, right? On Christmas morning to teach everybody in that congregation that there's no such thing as the virgin birth. On Christmas! Merry Christmas! Right? What a gift! I remember sitting there going, what is this hypocrisy? What is this? I mean, if, if I was my age, I, like now, I would have stood up and yelled anathema. What a heretic. That is wrong. Merry Christmas. Jesus isn't God. God didn't fulfill his promises. And this is what churches were facing. This is, that was like a real punch in the face for me when I was re- hit with the reality of this, of this liberalism. And, and what really rocked the churches was, was that this, this teaching actually came from within the church. It wasn't from the outside. It was from with, within and so when they looked at passages like this, they, they took this, this passages in this feast, and this is the way that they interpret it. Instead of it being about Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000 out of a small lunch, it was actually about the disciples and how the disciples went through the whole entire crowd as they separated everybody in their, in their groups of 50. They went throughout the crowd and they asked people to share their lunch. And when they gathered everything up together, that's how much they had to feed everybody, including that much more. That's better. Isn't that a greater miracle? That people would share and take care of one another? That's what they would describe and teach as the greater miracle. I'm certainly not opposed to sharing your lunch. In fact, I would like to be invited to lunch more. Because that, but that completely misses the point of the whole passage. Now, I'm not saying that your childhood Sunday school teacher was a liberal, but liberal theology has certainly has infected our interpretation of the Bible and has, its, has infected and had its effect on the church. And I say all of this 
this, now I can take my teaching hat off now. I say all of this because I want you to have complete confidence in the Scripture. I want you to have complete confidence in the Scripture that even though you have no clue how Jesus did this, but by the very words of His mouth, He spoke and blessed that bread into existence, that this is a bona fide miracle, that this is something that only God Himself can do. And so that then, that then through this miracle, we can look to God. We can look to Jesus because He alone is sufficient. If He can do this and has done this, then He alone is sufficient and, and satisfying to our souls. Not just that we can look better. Not just so that we can be a better you or be a better person. But it's to keep us and to help us to look up and look to Christ and to fix our gaze on, on Him and be transformed by looking to Him and be satisfied by looking to Him. You know, that's the real miracle. That's the, that's the real miracle that's being, that's being brought out here, that's being pointed to and showing us so that we would look to Jesus to satisfy all of our needs. And that's where we're going to go this morning. That's what we're going to go... Um, this morning. Now, in our passage, just to help you guys give you a little context here in, in the Gospel of Luke, like I said, it's, this is an important miracle because it's recorded in all four Gospels, but this is also a very important passage in the Gospel of Luke because this is kind of at the tipping point of the ministry of Jesus, at the apex in the sense of his ministry, because at this point, the, his Galilean ministry is starting to end. This is where he's been since the very beginning, since we started. He's been in Galilee. And at this point, he is going to start making his way south, heading to Jerusalem. And that's very important for us to understand because there's a great transition that's taking place here. They're helping us once again to see the identity of Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Son of God who has all the authority. That's what we've been dealing with over the last couple weeks or months. And now we see Jesus turning his face toward, toward the cross and toward Jerusalem. And in this drama that unfolds in the wilderness, we will see once again the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, verse 10 and 11 sets us up what's, what's about to happen. The disciples, they come back, they're sharing with Jesus all the, all the great things that, that, that is taking place and what, an, what amazing stories they must, they must have had in, in talking about what the Lord has, has done. And yet, when they got back, they're sharing and they're just inundated with people. They're inundated with, with the crowds once again. The crowds just pile in and they were overwhelmed and exhausted by people again. <laughs> Now, they're just like us. These, these guys, if you do ministry for as long as you've, they've done ministry, and they've been walking and traveling, and they've been preaching and, 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 and healing and doing all these things, they get tired. These guys were exhausted. In fact, they were so exhausted, Jesus says, boys, let's get out of here. Let's go, to a, let's go out into the wilderness, because nobody wants to go out into the wilderness. Let's go out into the wilderness, and we're going to hang out there. And so they go about a, a four to eight mile journey, depending if they went by land or if they went by sea. And they go outside of the city of Bethsaida. And in verse 11, the people, it tells us that the people didn't leave. 
They followed him. And as they followed Jesus to where he was, that people were probably like, hey, where are you going? Where's this group of people going? And, and it just got bigger. You know, you remember the scene in Rocky where, getting strong now, and he's running through Philadelphia, and then like all the kids just keep flocking to him, and the group gets huge and huge. That's kind of what happened, except for multiplied by 5,000 dudes, probably 10,000 when you add everybody together at least. That's, that's what happened. So this group it just, gets, just gets huge. So here's these guys. They're trying to relax. They're trying to chill. They want to hang out. They want to unplug and have this camping trip with Jesus, and it turns into Woodstock, right? It turns into this massive thing. You can imagine the apostles just kind of being like, please send them away. Maybe at noon when things get hot, we can send them away. And yet... And yet, in the, in the ways that they think that they were going to be refreshed in a camping trip and, and getting away and unplugging, they're refreshed in a whole nother way. They're refreshed in a, in, in, a, in a whole nother way. Jesus openly welcomes the people and he preaches to them the, the, the kingdom of God. And if you look at the emphasis of the, of the Greek language here, Jesus preached a long message, by the way. He preached. He preached and he preached. He preached at great lengths using the Old Testament and parables and reasoning with them, heralding them the, the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of, of the sovereign God's promises now being the, the, right in front of them as Jesus himself. And that brings me to my first point. You're like, what? First point? It's been like 30 minutes. The first point, Jesus welcomes. You see that right there in verse 11. Jesus welcomes them. Right? He didn't turn them away. He didn't say, I'm gonna, I need to go rest. My boys need to rest. No, he welcomes them in. And we see in Jesus welcoming this huge, massive group of, of, of people. Uh, we see Jesus revealed. We see Jesus revealed in this party that takes place in this wilderness around food, around a meal again. Right? Around food again. We see it. He welcomes them in, and Jesus is their host. He is their host to this glorious feast that's about to take place in the wilderness. He welcomes them. In verse 15, when he's about to do the miracle, he goes and he tells the the, the disciples, go tell them to sit. In fact, he says it twice, tell them to sit. And if you look at that word, that word can also be translated, go recline, go chill. Tell them, to, tell them to relax. Tell them to, to lay out as if they are at a, a, a feast, at a, at a banquet. Go sit down. Lie on the grass because there is a party that's about to happen. This, this is more than just an impromptu picnic in the desert just to, just to meet the bare essential needs of the people. This is a banquet where Jesus is the host and Jesus is the caterer. Now, this passage is very reminiscent to a couple Old Testament passages. We read one this morning from Exodus chapter 16. God's provision for his people of, uh, with, with, with manna in the wilderness. They were wandering around in the wilderness and they began complaining, God, we have no food. God, we have no food. And, they, and, and this was after they left Egypt, after the exodus of, of Moses. They complained about the lack of food, and God gave them manna from heaven. Once again, Luke chapter 9, the people are in the wilderness. And Jesus looks up to heaven, and bread was miraculously provided. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the better Moses. A better Moses who's about to lead a greater exodus. Leading God's people not just from slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery from sin and death. Let me show you another one that's a little bit more extensive. In 800 years before, before Jesus, there was the prophet Isaiah who, who promised from God in Isaiah 25.1. They'll put it up on the screen. You need to read this. Isaiah 25.1. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, right? So not just for Israel, but for all peoples, all nations. And he's going to make what? He's going to make a feast of rich Food, a feast of well-aged grape juice. Insert laugh. Of rich, full marrow of aged grape juice, well-refined. Nobody laughed. Nobody got it. Is it up there? Yeah. Kelly got it. It's not up there. Maybe that's why. I didn't, maybe I didn't put verse, maybe I was supposed to put verse 2 on there. I don't know. What a meal that God is promising here. A meal for, for all people. A meal that, that where God is the caterer and God is the, the provider and the, and the host. We bring nothing. The people bring nothing to this feast. It's not the Thanksgiving where you're told to bring the, 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 uh, the casserole, the, the macaroni and cheese. This is, you show up and God has provided the richest and the best food possible. We bring nothing. But it gets even better. Back in Isaiah 25, verse 7, we get to see what's on the menu. Look what else is on the menu. It says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that casts over all people. Listen to this. The veil that is spread over all nations. This is powerful. Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. Gone. And the Lord will wipe away every tear from all the faces, and the reproach of His people will, He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That is powerful. What a feast that's going to be. There, there's not a Thanksgiving or Christmas meal that will compare to this, that when the veil of death is covered over all nations will be swallowed up forever. What a meal. Now this is known, this feast, is known as the Messianic Banquet. The Messianic Banquet. It's because God's Messiah will defeat death. This is what he's, do you, do you see what it's pointing toward? Do you see what this feast is pointing toward? It's talking about God's Messiah who will defeat and swallow up death forever. He has swallowed up death on the cross, and when He was resurrected, He has destroyed the effects of death forever. And this feast, this feast points to Him making the world right. All the, all the things that we fear, all the things that we know are not right in this world, this points to God making them right. And it enables us to enjoy God's presence. And although Isaiah's feast is, is, not the, is, not the not, is, is not what's yet, right? It's pointing to something that's coming. It's pointing to a, to a coming reality in which we can understand even more. 
We can understand it as, as the, the pieces of the puzzle are put together because we see Jesus and we know the cross and we know who the host of the feast is. We know the one who's going to swallow up death forever. It's Jesus. So that's not the full reality. And even Luke chapter 9, what we're reading in this is not the full reality. It's not the full deal. It's not the full deal. We, we can enjoy parts of it now. We can enjoy parts of the feast now, especially when we, when we gather together, but it's an anticipation to what's to come. Jesus is the host of God's great party. And just as he was the host of the dinner in the wilderness, he, Jesus, comes and welcomes them. He has also welcomed us to receive and to receive the manna of the word of God. Now, how does that help us now? Well, let me just point this out. We live in a world where there is hunger, where there is pain, where there is suffering. There are people that are going today in this world without just the very basic necessities of life. The very basic necessities. Even in our own country, where, where seemingly most people have, have something to eat, people still live in want. They still want something else. They're not content. They're not satisfied. Just because we may not want bread doesn't mean we're not satisfied or unsatisfied. It means that we're unsatisfied. It means we still can be longing for meaning. We still can be longing for intimacy and fulfillment and community and purpose and happiness. We long for these things to be worked out, and when they are not worked out in our lives, they become taxing like a weight that we bear. And it becomes almost unbearable at times. But Jesus steps into the, to this world, and just like he doesn't fit into the categories of disciples and how, Jesus, how he was going to provide for the, the people, right? Jesus steps into this world, and he still welcomes and he feeds in a way that was completely unexpected. The disciples didn't have a clue what Jesus was getting at. He didn't fit into their expectations, and that's the same mistake that we have so many times with, with Jesus. Is we, we judge Jesus by our own standards of this world and how we think Jesus should satisfy us, Jesus should welcome us and make us feel a certain way. And we adapt our own ideas and expectations of how Jesus should fulfill those particular needs. The problem is, is, is the world that we rule over and the expectations that we have drawn from this world, the world that we live in, is stricken stricken with famines and, and, and ravaged nations and wars and un, injustice that completely goes unchecked. Communities that are fractured, violence and hatred on a daily basis, on a, on a scale we couldn't even fathom. Families divided. Welcome to the kingdom of you and me. Another kingdom that was, that's been, kind of been presented to us in Luke, we kind of drove over it pretty quick. But in Matthew and Mark shows us an extensive story with King Herod. Herod throws his own party. And when Herod throws up his party, he invites all the nobles to his party. And they, they get drunk with their wine. And they get drunk with their wine in such a way he wants to impress his nobles. So he calls in his stepdaughter to come in and dance erotically for his buds. This is the kingdom of our world. And, and because it pleased him and his buds so much, he made a promise to her to give her something, anything she wanted. 
and we know what happens. It ends up in the, the beheading of John the Baptist. He's manipulated, and John the Baptist is beheaded. But what about Jesus' party? He welcomes. He includes the poor. You don't have to be a noble. Come on. You're hungry? Come on. He's moved with mercy and compassion. He proclaims to them the good news. And everybody at his party leads satisfied and full. Herod's party, you're excluded if you're poor. You're excluded. He's, he's motivated by pride and enslaved. And his party ends in what? Death. Brothers and sisters, that's the party of our world. That's the party that is welcoming you on a daily basis to press into and to, to lean into. This is, that's our world, a kingdom that is dying. But here, in a desolate place, not in a castle, but in a desolate place in the wilderness at this time, it's one point in history we are given a glimpse of the coming reality of the eternal banquet that Jesus has welcomed us into. This is what the poor and the hungry are invited to. This is what we are welcome into. Are you hungry now? Are you poor now? You will be satisfied. Go back in Luke chapter 6. You will see that. This is the promises that are made for us on the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are those who hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. He's welcoming us into this. And when we gather together, when we, when we gather together, literally, on Sunday mornings as needy, hungry, poor people, and with Jesus at the center as our, as our host, he satisfies us with the nurturing of the word of God. And each and every moment he does that, we get another glimpse of God's great coming banquet. That's the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of our world. That's the kingdom of, of God. We are welcomed. But it also shows us as well that we are to be welcoming. Jesus has welcomed us, therefore we can welcome others. We have a responsibility to welcome and invite others to the Messianic banquet. Listen, we can't solve people's problems. We're not here to solve everyone's problems and make them rely on us because when we do that, we're kind of feeding our own pride because we want to say, look what I did. But Jesus is telling us to invite them into the Messianic banquet. We can't bring them, but we can offer people Jesus. We can offer people this feast and this bread that will satisfy them. Because his death and his resurrection is sufficient and it's absolutely complete. He is the host. He is the provider, not us. We welcome. We are to welcome. And that brings me to point two. Jesus provides. Jesus provides. We see in the meal, in the miracle, in the, in the wonderful little drama that takes place of Jesus providing. The, the disciples bring to Jesus this logistical problem. Listen, Jesus, it's late in the day. People, if they stay out here and they don't have any food, they don't have any water, they're pretty much going to die, meaning we're going to die too. You've got to send them away. We don't have anything. He flats out tells them, though, you feed them. I mean, this, like I said when I was reading, this is an imperative. You feed them. And, of course, they know as much as Jesus knows that they have absolutely no chance on feeding a crowd like that. No, I mean, would you, how would you like that if you had a crowd like that coming? Would you like to cater that kind of meal? 
Yikes. They have no chance on feeding these, these people. And what Jesus is showing them is this. He is showing them like he does over and over again. He's showing his disciples as much as he shows us how helpless we are in our own human ability. Our resources are little. Our resources are small. Our resources are ridiculously inadequate to meet the needs of ourselves as well as meet the needs of others. But Jesus isn't just pointing this out to make us feel bad. He's pointing it out to them as much as he's pointing it out onto, to us is so that we would look to his divine sufficiency to provide. That he provides. That Christ is our provider. Look at verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed them. Let's see how he provides. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and he set it before the crowd. So he took this very small resource, the five loaves and the two fish. He broke the bread. He prayed and he gave thanks to God, blessing the meal. And he gave them to the disciples and he passed them out. Right? So he took the, there must have been 12 baskets in the beginning, handed to the 12 guys, and they must have passed them out. And the way that I kind of imagined the way it took place is that every single time they were reaching in, pulling something out, the thing just kept filling it back up again. That's just kind of the way I imagined it. There's a, there's a story that my, my grandmother would tell us when we were younger, um, and it was a story about her mom. In, in Holland, during World War II under Nazi occupation, there was what you would call a famine in the land. All economy had stopped. Um, their food was running out. It was being um, stolen and confiscated by the, uh, by the Nazis. But my grandmother, my, my grandmother told me that her, I guess you say my great-grandmother, had, had at the beginning of the war this, this pot of potatoes. She had one pot of potatoes. Of course, other things too, but, but eventually that was it. That's all we had, or all she had was the pot of potatoes. And, and, and as she knew this is what she had, and she knew she couldn't leave, and, and, and she trusted the Lord that the Lord would provide through this pot of potatoes. But one thing that started to happen was people started coming to her door and asking for food. And my grandmother, my great-grandmother didn't know what to do. She's like, I don't know, I, I can't give, this is for my family, I, I can't give. But she trusted the Lord. I weep because this is my family. She trusted the Lord and said, Lord, I will give freely if you would keep this pot full. And he did. That's the story. That's the story that I was told as a kid. Of course, as a kid, I'm, I'm thinking, this is amazing. God's provision. This is before I was even a believer. And I could think and see God's provision. That's kind of the way I thought about it with the 12 baskets, is that the pot just kind of kept on being full to the point where at the end there were still 12 baskets filled with food. And as the story uh, continues... The Lord provided richly for these people. He was the provider. But notice something else in this verse. There's a pattern there. There's a pattern in this verse of what Jesus does before the food is passed out. What does he do? It's a pattern that looks kind of familiar for us. We, we do this at the Lord's Supper. It's what he did in the Lord's Supper. He took, he thanked, he broke, and he gave. Well, what is this, what is this pointing to? 
This is pointing to the, to, the, to the Lord's Supper, which again is pointing forward much further back to that Isaiah 25 passage of the Messianic Feast. The Lord's Supper was given to us by Jesus for us to remember his death and his atoning sacrifice, that it was completely sufficient to the forgiveness of our sins. This simple meal, the simple meal that they had in the wilderness, the simple meal that we take together is a reminder, a symbolic reminder that we are needy sinners unable to provide for our own atonement and forgiveness. It's a reminder that we need, and yet the glory is that Christ has richly provided through His body and His blood. Yes! I need amen. Name amen. And so remember that this is the hinging point of the gospel again. Remember of Luke? This is the hinging point. This meal is pointing toward another meal. This meal is pointing to, to another meal that we're all going to remember. It's pointing toward Jerusalem. It's pointing toward the, toward the cross. This banquet in the wilderness is huge because it's revealing other greater glorious banquets about Jesus, our welcomer and our provider. And he has welcomed us into this feast as our provider, dying for us. So this shows us that we're not to look to Jesus to provide for us in the same way that he did there. Right? I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. He does. And, and maybe that story my grandmother told me was true. And so God certainly does that and still continues. We see other places in the Bible where he's done that too. Right? Certainly the Lord does, uh, does that. But what this passage is, is pulling to us and pointing to us is that this messianic banquet is coming. That Jesus has richly provided for God's people. That this is how God has provided for us. And so where do we look for that provision then? Brothers and sisters, where do we look for that provision? This is so key. Look to the cross. Jesus has provided for you not at Walmart. He has provided for you at the cross. You know what? You know what just ran through my mind as I said that? That's not in my notes. I bet there's church signs that say that. <laughs> we glad we don't have a church sign. That's Jesus has richly provided for us. We look to the cross. It is at the cross where we see how God has richly provided for you and for me. And there's so many. So many are looking to Jesus to provide for them in ways he has never promised them. And because of that, they are completely missing out on the greatest provision in the cross. Do you look to the cross? If, if you are hungry now, look for, to the cross. This is why, why, why fasting, I know, I just said the F word. Fasting is so glorious and so good for us and so difficult because it keeps us from looking at ourselves and looking down and it's a reminder that we look to the rich provision of Christ. And really, our hunger pangs that we have are actually a mercy of God as a reminder to look up and to look to Him. Jesus provides. This meal shows great provision. Point three, Jesus satisfies. You're like, more points. 
verse 17. I mean, this is so easy, this, this outline here. Welcomes, provides, satisfies. Verse 17. And they all ate and were, everybody say it with me, and they were what? Satisfied. They were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. So two things going on. Everyone's full. They ate their full, satisfied, and there was leftovers. Jesus welcomes, he provides, and he alone is able to satisfy us richly. Amazing. Amazing that Jesus satisfies them. And this points to us, as we've been pointing more again and again, to the utter sufficiency of Christ. That he has provided for us in salvation, and he has provided for us in life. And this great example of, of eating food is just so universal because we can understand, this is a shared experience by all of humanity, that we know what it feels like to be hungry, and we know what it feels like to eat and be satisfied. We, we all know this, and this is why the Bible is just filled with these, these metaphors and stories about food and feasting and eating and fasting and, and all of these, these great things. Is because we can understand that. Food and how it satisfies us physically is used as a, as, as a, to describe the spiritual blessings. Even in places where, where we live, where we know we're going to go home and we're going to eat. Even in places where food is uh, abundant, there is spiritual hunger that abounds in every human heart. And because of that human heart and that hunger that we have, we turn to so many different places to be satisfied. Even good things, those things that we named in the beginning. Any number of places we, we turn for deep soul satisfaction. We look for it in success. We look for it in the praise of others. We look for it in money and the acquirement of wealth and things. We look for it in entertainment and relationships and sex. We look for it in families. We look for it in our children. We try to find satisfaction in life in our, in our children. We look for it even in religion. And all of these things, they could be good in, in, in the right context, but, but none of those things can bear the weight of our longing souls. Those things cannot bear the weight of your longing soul. They can't. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a thirsty man going to Tybee and drinking the ocean water thinking that that's going to satisfy them. It only brings on more problems besides the bacteria that they would get from the swamps and stuff. It would bring more problems. The problem is then, the problem is not your desires. My problem is not my desire for my children and my wife and, my, and, and, and being successful and happy in life. That's not my problem. My problem is not my desires. It's where I look to be satisfying those desires. If I'm looking anywhere else to be satisfied in those deep, longing things besides Jesus, then, then I will never be satisfied. And the problem with our culture, and I know I've said this to you guys over and over again, the problem with our culture is, is that it's changing so fast. It's changing so fast that we can look in a billion different directions to be satisfied and really never know that you're hungry. I can get on my Apple TV. I mean, I only could dream of this when I was a kid. I can get on my Apple TV and I can get on Netflix and guess what? I can find nothing to watch. I'll go to Amazon Prime and guess what? I can find nothing to watch. 
I can go to the AMC app and I can find nothing to watch. I can go to the History Channel app and I can find nothing to watch. And then I can go to YouTube and I can find nothing to watch. And then I go to MLB or something like that and I'll be like, ooh, or ESPN, ooh. I got something to watch. We, we never settle enough to really know that we are hungry because we have been pulled in so many different directions that that just fills us up. We think it's filling us, but it cannot bear the real weight. And we're, so we're drawn to these places that will keep us unsatisfied. So then how are we satisfied by the real spiritual blessings, real satisfaction? Where does it come from? We know it comes from Jesus. But in John chapter 6, or we're going back to the, the little boy passage. In John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he walks on water, which is another amazing story. It's one of my favorite, actually. Um, after Jesus walks on water, um, there's still this large crowd. And, and Jesus begins to teach very profoundly to this large crowd. In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That sounds good, right? I mean, that sounds amazing. And But then right after this, he actually tells the people, he demands of them that you must eat of me. You have to feast on my flesh. I mean, he literally says that. So this huge crowd that's here, it's hearing this about Jesus being, them eating his flesh. Jews get mad, upset. People are disappointed and and disillusioned. And hear what he says in verse 53. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I and I live because of the Father. And whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is telling us. Jesus is telling us that it is not the literal bread of this world that satisfies us. What satisfies us is Him. What fills that hunger, what fills that thirst is, is Him. In fact, that the bread of the old covenant, the manna that we read about, it was only there for just a day. And then it would, 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 would go away. It would spoil. There was absolutely no way to keep leftovers. In fact, I think it's, there's a part of that where it says they actually kept it. One couple people kept it, and it was like stinky and nasty. Stank. That was the word. I remember you saying that word. It stank. But look at the feast that Jesus gets. The feast of the, the new covenant, it, it satisfies completely. This is grace upon grace that overflows, grace upon grace that God gives us day after day. This is what John chapter 6 is telling us. This is what Jesus is telling us. This is what Jesus is pointing to us. So I want to ask is what is satisfying your soul? Does Jesus satisfy you? That's really the greatest question that we can ask this, this morning. We can't just add Jesus to the list. He is the list. The crowd wanted food. They wanted more food. And Jesus said, eat of me. The people walked away from Jesus after that in John chapter 6. So if you want family more than you want Jesus, if you want food more than you want Jesus, then that's your idol. 
If you want sex more than Jesus, then that's your idol. If you want success more than Jesus, then that's your, your idol. You want entertainment more than Jesus, then that's your idol. And no idol can satisfy our souls all long for peace and meaning and purpose, which we attempt to fill with everything else. But satisfaction can only come from knowing God and being known by Him. It is Jesus who can feed our starving souls. I started off by asking you the two questions, and I want you to know that those two questions are not opposed. They're only opposed if you elevate one above the other. If you elevate all of those other things as being the places that you are seeking for your, for your provider and not looking to Jesus, then you will never be satisfied. And as good as they are, they will never fill you up. They can't bear the weight of your hunger. But I want to also tell you this and encourage you, that if you are satisfied in Christ, if you are looking to Jesus, then all of those things, all of those good and glorious things, guess what happens to those? Those things get rolled up into to, to greater satisfactions in Christ because we see those things as good gifts of God. And you'll begin to enjoy those things as they were meant to be enjoyed in the fullest, as being God's good gift to his people. Are you hungry this morning? Are you restless this morning? Are you not satisfied? Do you know that this morning Jesus is welcoming you? I mean, maybe that's the thing you pulled from this morning is Jesus is welcoming you. There's the bread. Welcoming you to the great feast. Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. O taste and see that the Lord is good. And back to um, uh, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a promise. Where, what a promise. Where are you looking? Does Jesus satisfy you? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your Son as our rich provider of such wonderful grace. Thank you, the God, that you, by your grace and your love and your goodness and kindness, you have welcomed undeserving, starving, homeless, poverty-stricken people. And you welcomed us into this feast that we would inherit the kingdom of God. I pray, O oh Lord, this morning, help us to long for Jesus and to be satisfied in him alone. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.